0: Thanks for joining us. We're here to talk about dividend strategies today with Lance Humphreys of Victory Capital. Lance is a senior portfolio manager there. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, Stuart. Great to be here. Appreciate you for having me.
0: Hey, it's great to be on. I love doing podcasts with you. I always get a chance to learn a bunch. We'll start this one like we start them all. A hometown, first job ever. Fun fact.
1: So I have been a Texas native my whole life. So I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Arlington, Texas. And for anyone who doesn't know Arlington, Texas, that's where today the new Dallas Cowboys stadium is. So I grew up not too far from there and then have spent the rest of my time in Texas. I've had some time in Austin and then moved down a little further south to San Antonio, which is where I'm at today. And, And I always say that I won't be going further south than San Antonio. So this will be the furthest down I'll be going here in Texas. But so my first job, my first kind of, I'd say real job was waiting tables at a a Texas-based restaurant, you know, and I did that for a few years. But if I were to be more specific, and it maybe actually kind of ties into the fun (laughs) fact about me is, so I'm I'm a big music fan in general. I I like playing music, I play guitar. But something that I, I realized at an early age was that I was never going to be that good. I had a very low ceiling on my potential because, you know, as we'll talk about later, I tend to be much more analytically focused, but I forget which side of the brain that is, but I don't have a lot of the artistic side. So I figured that was always going to cap the limit I had on ever being a musician. But at an early age, I, I became very interested in the music business and the kind of science and engineering behind music. So my first actual job technically was, As an entrepreneur or business owner, I actually I think I was 14 or 15 years old and I actually had a, you know, I I, you can't see me on the video, but I'm putting air quotes as a my own record label where there was this site called mp3.com. And long story short, you could get paid by having your music listened to on that site. And I ended up having this little mini record label where I think I had 15 or 20 different artists kind of under my umbrella where I got paid a little piece of what they did. I even had two employees someone in marketing and then someone in, in sales. And I don't think they had any idea that I was 14 at the time. But, uh, you know, so I had that little company going for a little while. But I think that was probably my first way to earn revenue. And then, like I said, from there, I uh, ended up waiting tables at a restaurant for, for several years thereafter.
0: Man, that is a great story. I love that story. a, a music entrepreneur early on. So Victory Capital is a client of ours and has been for a while, but for those folks who aren't as familiar, give us a little bit of background on Victory Capital before we get started too far here.
1: Sure. So we're a, you know, a large asset manager and we have a rather unique business model where we combine boutique investment capabilities along with the benefits and scale that comes along with a fully integrated centralized investment platform. So today we have right around $164 billion total AUM, and that's spread across 12 individual investment franchises, as well as a solutions platform, which is actually where I'm a part of, where we provide customized solutions to our clients.
0: So just let's just talk specifically about managing equity portfolios. I'm a bond geek. I hold that flag proudly. I've never run equity money professionally, but... Dividends are a big part of any of an equity position or an equity holding and that's really where you focus. So, can you talk a little bit about the advantages of dividends and why dividend growth is important to you in the in the way that you look at the world? Sure.
1: So, I think if we take a step back and think about dividends for what they are, there's certainly several advantages in my opinion, to dividend investing. And if we think about historically, the composition of returns from equities, we could go back, we have data to the 1930s, where I think the S&P 500 has averaged around 9% per year annualized over that time period. Of that 9%, 4% has come from the dividend income received as well as reinvesting that dividend. So we could say about 40% of the total return from the S&P 500 has come from dividends. So that automatically makes them a very important part of an overall investment strategy, a very important driver and determinant of the long-term total returns of an equity investment. But more specifically, maybe more tactically is dividends also have a preferential tax treatment relative to other forms of income investing. Of course, capital gains are also a preferred tax treatment. But if you mentioned Your background in bond investing. Of course, bonds are taxed at ordinary income tax rates, where dividends can be, in most cases, qualified, which means they're going to be able to be taxed at a lower rate than that of traditional income. So there's a nice tax advantage there. A couple other important things that I think are more important even tactically, or as we think about the environment today, would be that. Dividends at times can provide a source of risk management or drawdown protection. And again, as we dig a little bit deeper into some of the characteristics of dividend paying companies, oftentimes companies that pay dividends and grow dividends tend to have lower overall risk measures, whether that be a lower standard deviation, a lower beta relative to the market, or lower drawdowns compared to the overall market. So we think that dividends can be an important source of managing risk with an overall equity portfolio. And then lastly, today we're in an environment where, of course, interest rates have risen pretty substantially this year. Many are calling for further rate increases moving forward. Of course, the Fed is looking like they're going to continue to raise rates into the near future. And then we're in the highest inflationary environment that we've been in really since the 1970s and 1980s. And so when we look historically, dividend investing can provide a nice hedge against an overall inflationary environment. So because we're receiving income from these companies, oftentimes the dividend and dividend yields of indexes or dividend strategies tend to move with inflation. So for instance, if we just simply look at the dividend yield on the S&P 500, in that period I mentioned before, the 1970s, 1980s, dividend yields were quite a bit higher than what they were over the last 10 years when interest rates were low. So we see a somewhat of a correlation between dividend yields and the level of inflation or the level in interest rates. So if we were to continue to see those trends move forward, then I think dividend yields and dividend income can increase alongside inflation. And then lastly, if we look at the last four or five cycles of increasing interest rates from the Fed, in each of those five periods, dividend strategies have outperformed the overall equity markets in the following 12 to 24 months. So we just find that in general, not only are there positive attributes of dividend investments in a rising interest rate environment, but also in a total return perspective, they've historically done a little bit better than that of the overall market in periods where the Fed has been raising interest rates. The second part of that question was you talked about dividend growth. And it's something that we think is very important when we think about dividend investing. And if I were to just draw a parallel, if I were to think about when you're applying for, you're looking for a job, right? There's a lot of factors that you're going to consider when determining whether or not you want to accept a new job. And obviously the the first one is going to be the salary. What is the level of income that I'm going to get from this job or from this new career? And Higher is obviously going to be better, but something that we all either directly think about or we're indirectly thinking about when making that choice is not only what is my salary today, but what are the chances or what is the likelihood or the paths of having that income increase over time? Is it a company that's growing? Is it a company that's promoting? Is it a company that has a lot of different avenues or opportunities to move up and have that income increase over time? And when we think about dividend investing, it's really no different. We want to be able to identify and find securities that are paying attractive levels of income today, but if not equally important, maybe even more important, do we have the ability for that dividend income to increase over time? And so we think that the combination of a high dividend yield in an investment, along with the prospect or the opportunity that income to increase over time. We think those two things are a very important element in identifying an attractive company in the dividend space.
0: And it's, it's interesting, as you know well, I mean, our listener base, our audience is insurance companies, right? And they are in need of investment income. They don't get credit, the same credit for capital gains as they do for invested income. And so this, you know, dividend strategies have always been sort of mainstream in the insurance asset management community. And for a lot of the reasons that you pointed out, but I just kind of taking a step just to focus on one, on one thing you mentioned, and, and I've often told my students, if you're going to take a job with a place in order for you to do well, that place needs to grow, Correct. right? If they're never going to hire another person the only chance you ever getting promoted is if someone ahead of you, more senior than you, retires or whatever else. So the fact that the thing is growing, your opportunity set is growing matters. So the, I guess the question comes back to what's the best way to identify stocks that are likely to increase their dividend over time?
1: Well, I think you hit on a couple of the key elements in your example, which is a company needs to be able to grow to be able to grow their dividend. And I think a few of the elements are going to be relatively intuitive, which is first and foremost, a company must be profitable. You know, you cannot continue to pay out a dividend with money that you don't have. And so looking at profitability is one of the uh, most important things that we look at when determining whether or not a company can grow the dividend. And again, we could go in, into more detail, but a high level, profitability is very important. We have a lot of different ways and measures that we look at that. Taking a step back, I would actually say the most important indicator of a company's ability to grow a dividend is the track record or the past performance, if you will, of their dividend growth. So the single most predictor of a company's ability to pay a dividend and grow their dividend is if they have a successful track record of doing so. And there's many companies in the universe today, you think about names like Coca-Cola or Pepsi or ADP or others that have been growing their dividends uh, consecutively for, in many cases, 40, 50 plus years. So a company that has shown the ability and the wherewithal to do that year after year is the number one predictor, mathematically, of the ability to increase dividends over time. But number two, again, is then the profitability of the company. So we need to see that a company has not only high levels of profitability and growing levels of profitability, but we also think that the stability of that profitability, that stability of income is very important. So ideally, it's really looking at a few of those variables together. Does a company have a track record of increasing dividends historically? Is the company making money, creating profits for shareholders? And then are they doing so in a way that is stable and consistent? Now, a few other things that we look for as risks to a company being able to pay their dividend. We call it our sustainability screening or dividend sustainability screening. So what is the likelihood that a company can sustain the current trajectory of their dividend payments? And I mentioned a few of those focused on profitability, stability, but there's a few other red flags that we will highlight when identifying companies. And again, a lot of these make intuitive sense, but of course the payout ratio is one that's very important. So if a company is paying out a very high percentage of their income in the form of dividends, what we find historically is that can put that level of dividend at risk relative to other companies. Another factor that we look at is the yield itself. What we find is if we take, let's say, the the top 500 companies within the United States and, and rank the top 500 dividend yielding companies, you're typically gonna find some companies that have dividend yields of 10, 20, maybe even 30%. And Oftentimes when you see a dividend yield that that is that high or that extreme relative to the overall peer group, that tends to be a red flag. Usually that company is facing some sort of financial distress, which is why their stock price might be very low relative to their dividend, or it could be a number of other things. But we tend to have, or put a red flag on a company that has a very high level of a dividend yield. Also things like high levels of debt. For instance, when we look at the history of companies that have either had to suspend or cut or temporarily put a decline in their dividend, oftentimes we find those are companies that have high levels of debt and that debt service has prevented them from being able to grow those dividends into the future. So again, if I were to kind of summarize that, it's really the past history of a company's dividend payments, their profitability, the level of payout, and then again, the current level of yield are all things that we look at in being able to determine the likelihood that a company is going to be able to grow the dividend in the future,
0: it, it's interesting. I taught when I taught investments in corporate finance, one of the cases we did was on dividend policy, and it's not something that ever comes up on these podcasts. But you know, you mentioned it, and it, it kind of triggered me to, to just talk about this. It's like when companies declare a dividend, they're expected. And correct me here where I'm wrong, if just kind of help me out here. So. Mm-hmm. A company declares a dividend, the market's expectation is that they are going to continue to pay that level of dividend. Cutting a dividend is seen very negatively by the street, right? And by the same token, when they make a commitment to increase their dividend, the company is exhibiting a lot of confidence in their ability to not only pay that dividend near term, but also longer run because of the well-known expectation that the street does not view dividend cuts positively. Does that come into any of your analysis when you're looking at at stocks in your portfolio?
1: Absolutely. I think that the, just like you said, a company willing to put out that they're going to pay a dividend, typically they're going to have a lot of confidence. They have the ability to make that payment, just like you said. And what we find is that because of that, dividend cuts tend to be very infrequent but then they come in waves. So for instance, if we think back to the period following COVID, that was following four or five years where really we didn't see a lot of cuts in the market because everything was going well. It's really when we get into those stressful periods where we do see companies end up having to cut their dividend. And then that's where you see the effect of some of those measures that I mentioned before, really kind of separating those strong versus weak companies. But I think you're absolutely right that the a company having to cut their dividend tends to be a very worrisome sign for the street or for other investors. So a company that is willing to put that out that that they're going to pay a dividend and then again, likely increase that dividend in the future does create somewhat of a signaling effect to investors that the company has the wherewithal and the stability to continue to pay that dividend in the future. And I think it's one of the key reasons why historically, Dividend-paying investments have had a slightly higher risk-adjusted return than that of the overall
0: market. And so, you and I were talking about. I am a card-carrying bond geek, and we mentioned the word inflation, which is the kryptonite of bonds, as you well know. A very large portion of nearly every insurance company's portfolio is investment-grade fixed income, and that has really taken it on the chin this year, to be sure. And at the same time, inflation negatively impacts the liability profile of an insurance company because the cost of those claims is going to increase in the future. So I've written on this in a past letter, but inflation is really the double-edged sword for an insurance company. So can you talk a little bit about a dividend strategy and, and companies that pay dividends how they are faring or you expect them to fare or I don't want to get you looking forward here. I I know. Right. But can you talk a little bit about how dividend paying companies fare in an inflationary environment or how inflation impacts those companies?
1: Yeah. I mean, if if we think back to, again, a, a dividend paying stock is exactly that. It's an equity. It's a business. And we find historically that equities in general, tend to do better than a lot of other asset classes in inflationary environments. Because again, just the dynamic nature of a business is, if we think I mentioned Coca-Cola or Pepsi a moment ago, to the extent that their labor cost or their cost of goods sold or their inputs are increasing, they have the ability to then charge more for that can of Coca-Cola or for that can of Pepsi. So equities in general, of course, have the ability to pass on some of those inflationary risks relative to, to other asset classes. Now, that being said, equities in general are going to be a much more volatile asset class than fixed income. So there's certainly pros and cons to both where the income from dividend paying investments, as I mentioned, tends to be relatively correlated with the overall level of interest rates or inflation. So my general thought, and again, what we observe historically is that if interest rates were to continue to rise, that obviously has a temporarily negative impact on fixed income. But oftentimes, again, on the equity side, a lot of that is, be, is able to be passed through to the consumer. The stock price can be relatively stable to those periods. And we find that the level of income generally increases over time with the level of interest rate. So the if we're thinking about simply the income portion of dividend paying stocks, it tends to correlate more so and be more positively correlated, in, I guess, in a positive way to inflation than, than that of of fixed income.
0: And so obviously, dividend strategies, nothing new, been run for many years and very much a a center of the fairway approach. Can you talk a little bit about some differences in the way that you're managing dividend strategy versus maybe some of your peers or what are some of the key differentiators for you?
1: The first differentiator, I would say, and we've talked a lot about it up to this point about the focus not only on the high dividend yield of a company but also the ability to grow dividends over time so for instance in many of the strategies that we run if we were to look at let's say the sector composition of the portfolio i would say what i would call generation one dividend strategies you'll tend to find a lot of companies that are focused in areas of the market like consumer staples utilities financials, energy, companies that tend to have a high dividend yield. But if we look at the dividend growth rate of those companies, for instance, today, the dividend growth rate of, of the consumer staples sector within the broad market is only around 4 to 5% dividend growth, even though the dividend yield is north of 4%. Compare that to different sectors such as technology or consumer discretionary, where maybe the yield is only in the 2 to 3 4% range, which is going to be lower than the overall average but those dividends are growing on average between 10 to 15% per year. So I think all that being said is one of the differentiators in our strategy is you'll find much more broad sector representation. We're going to find dividend payers, dividend growers in more non-traditional sectors like technology, healthcare, and consumer discretionary because of that focus on not only the high dividend yield, but dividend growth. The other component that we haven't talked a lot about That we do specifically in many of the strategies that we run is we have a very high emphasis on quality. And I've talked about profitability a little bit up to this point, but focusing on the highest quality companies within that group of securities. So if we just take a step back, and again, being quantitative, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very, you know, I study a lot of the, the quantitative statistics of these types of investments. And what we find historically is that. Companies that pay a dividend relative to companies that do not pay a dividend, we find a small premium on companies that have paid a dividend. We talked about that early in the conversation on it could be because of the the signaling and the nature of companies that pay dividends. We do find a small premium on dividend payers versus non-dividend paying stocks. And then we've talked a lot about dividend growth. We also statistically have found that companies that grow the dividend have had a slightly higher return than companies that, that keep a stable dividend. That research is out there. there's a lot of strategies that are focusing on those components there. I would say the one thing that we do to take it even one step further is of those companies that we believe have the ability to continue to pay dividends in the future would be, we have a next step where we're trying to find the highest quality companies within that cohort. The way we define quality without going in too much detail is things like, again, high and growing levels of profitability, strong balance sheets, We'll do a a version of forensic accounting where we look at a company's cash flows relative to their gap earnings and ensure that they're growing cash at a similar rate that they're growing earnings, just to name a few. So we have several factors that we're looking at to determine and rank a company based off its overall quality score. So in many of the portfolios that we run, we're not only looking again for the high dividend yield, high dividend growth rate, but then we take it one step further to find the highest quality companies. That meet those characteristics. And we think that that's a very important step for the overall portfolio and the overall total return of the strategies.
0: And we didn't really talk about this much, but you have a background managing money for insurance companies. You know, you and I share that. And the one thing that, you know, we both know well is that insurance companies have specialized and bespoke needs from one company to the other, to the other. So, Can you talk a little bit about your ability to customize or tailor your strategy to the insurance sector or to a particular insurance investor, given what we've just talked about with regard to your philosophy?
1: Right. What I mentioned up front also is at Victory, part of our solutions team, really our whole business on the team that I'm a part of is about customized solutions. We're working with individual clients, whether it be insurance clients, institutional clients, retail clients, and really trying to provide solutions that are specifically meeting the needs that that client might be looking for. But as it pertains to insurance in particular, you you nailed it. A lot of times there's gonna be very specialized concerns, whether it be around not only tax planning, but capital gains and loss planning. For instance, having a stable level of income, because of course the income from investments ultimately flows to the net income statement of the company. So we work with a lot of our clients on being very customized on how and when we realize different types of income, whether it be for tax treatment or for the planning of the individual company. So we work with several insurance companies on meeting these various constraints. I had mentioned that at times, or we had talked about before, insurance companies obviously have large fixed income portfolios, for example. So there's clients that we'll work with who they may have a certain concentrated exposure, maybe in one sector or one industry or one type of company, we'll then be able to manage our dividend-oriented portfolios where maybe we'll avoid that sector or weight it less than we otherwise would. So bottom line, we work with various constraints and various levels of customization for our clients to ensure that we're not only managing our specific mandate, but allowing our mandate to work within their overall portfolio.
0: Yeah, and I think that's music to a lot of CIOs' ears, right? Because that's as you well know, they're operating, you know, running an investment portfolio inside the belly of an operating insurance right. company. And and the ability to customize those solutions has been, you know, is, is key to their to the success of of really any strategy that they're going to take on. Okay, so as an armchair CIO. If I said, "Hey, I need you to, I need to be able to manage my gain loss," you can handle that at least to some extent. We can over underweight a sector based on what I already have exposure to in my portfolio. So those are the kinds of of customized solutions that you can come up with for a particular insurance client.
1: Absolutely, those constraints are ones that we are very common, commonly working with. One additional example I might even throw in there would be not only kind of, I would call those hard constraints relative to sectors or other things, but even more stylistically. So we've had some clients where they may have other equity managers that let's say focus more so on growth investing, or maybe focus more on value investing. We have the ability to even tailor our stock selection approach to maybe focus less so on the highest growth areas of the market, because the CIO may have areas of focus already in that asset class. So we can really get customized, whether it's style, sector, country, or all the way down to individual trading constraints. And again, not only on dividend strategies, but really, again, the Victory Solutions team in general, that's what we're all about is providing solutions that are very customized to the end user to allow them and their clients to reach their ultimate
0: goals. That's fantastic. That's great. I mean, I Lance, I love it. I love learning. I get a chance to learn a lot. As you know, I mean, I w- I've taught for a number of years and I have a real soft spot in my heart for students. And so as you look out today in your career, you've been successful, a very successful guy and you're, you've obviously got a lot of career left. But if you were to turn the mirror back around and look behind you, what would you say to a 21-year-old Lance Humphrey coming out of undergraduate school today, coming into the financial services community?
1: So I think, you know, I am maybe relatively unique in the sense that, and again, maybe it's a little bit nerdy perhaps, but yeah, I kind of always nerdy's knew, good Lance. We love nerdy. You I definitely, I definitely fit it. You know, but, but I always, even as a very little kid, I remember we talked about earlier, kind of being analytically oriented, but even, I, like I said, grew up in Arlington, Fort Worth area. And, and I remember my first stock that I bought was Justin Boots, which is a Fort Worth based company. And, you know, I was a little kid and I loved reading the paper and back when they actually had stock quotes in the paper. And so bottom line, I kind of always knew that I wanted to be in the investment business. I just always had a, a passion for that. But if I were to go back to my 21 year old self, I think one of the most important things that, that I've learned throughout my career is that, you know, it, it's really about those other skill sets that allow you to be more well-rounded. I think that honestly, any person coming out of college or at some point in their re- career should have some sort of, whether a, a specific job or responsibility that is involved in in sales or education. I think being able to communicate ideas is incredibly important. So again, I, I say that because as I grew up and when I went to school, it was very much about kind of the theory and the math and programming around a lot of the investment concepts, but what I've come to learn more over the last 10 to 15 years would be the ability to communicate those concepts effectively might be more important or just as important as the concepts themselves. You've talked about your time teaching, so you know this as well, that the ability to get those concepts out and allow other people to understand them is really important. So I think that you know if I were to go back in time, it would really be about trying to learn and practice and hone in on Communication oriented skills to augment or to complement some of the more analytical, statistical
0: based knowledge. Man, that's great advice. That's, you know, you, you're a self proclaimed nerd, but that sounds like a guy that's a pretty darn good communicator right there. <laughs> so, um, well, it's been great having you on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much for being here.
1: Yes, yeah, sir. I really enjoyed it. It was great talking to you today.
0: Thank you. Lance Humphrey, Senior Portfolio Manager for the Dividend Strategies at Victory Capital. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email me at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast.